Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. And in this podcast, we will cover the global and local developments you need to know this week. Well, with me today is a couple of former Deloitte uh, executives who have moved back to the communications holding companies, in this case, um, Omnicom and DDB Group. And of course, it's interesting because we've seen a whole bunch of revolving, revolving doors going around with, in the last few months, where, and even the last week, Andy Bateman uh, has just left Deloitte for a, a creative agency in the US. We've seen Michael Buckley just leave Accenture Interactive as Managing Director. Sunita Gloucester earlier this year went from PwC to WPP. And of course, uh, just in the last month, we've seen Nicola Mansfield uh, leave Deloitte uh, to join uh, Interbrand in experience design and branding. And we've also got Edmund Tadros, who's the professional services editor at the Australian Financial Review, is going to give us a good take on, on the macro plays, the big picture plays that are going on in the consulting firms versus the communications holding companies. And later we'll be joined by John Bradshaw, our MI3 regular guest, to dissect and unpack what it all may mean. The discussion today is really around um, what's the wash-up and why the revolving doors. And then I think, um, you know, Nicola's got some uh, really interesting views on, on, on why she left. Deloitte's bought an agency, an experience, customer experience design company that you set up uh, and sold in 2016, I think, called Mashup? 2015, yes, Customer Experience Consultancy. Now, you've just left, uh, Nicola. What happened? Look, it was an incredible three years and very much enjoyed my time there. However, what I did realise is that the model, the operating model and the conditions are very well suited for incremental innovation. And sometimes... When you are looking at a customer experience strategy, you're looking for really iconic moves. And those big dramatic moves weren't always possible in that model. The model is very geared towards input and output. And sometimes when you're trying to drive a a, a more radical creative solution, you need a little bit more space to explore possibilities. That model doesn't really allow that. So you find yourself in a situation where you are constantly delivering uh, fantastic incremental innovations for clients. But I think as a creative what I'm really interested in is making some bold, iconic moves for clients. And of course, this is relevant because we've seen so many consulting firms uh, acquiring companies like yours and beyond, and, and, and whether it be customer experience or whether it be in, in digital transformation or digital capabilities, um, that is what uh, at least you know Deloitte's have been very active in. Nathan Birch, you've also been in the consulting sector, both in the UK and here, KPMG, Deloitte's, uh, now running uh, CEO, a CEO at Interbrand. Your observations on what's driving the the moves at the moment, there's a lot of people moves in and out. What, what's, what's behind that? I think there's a realisation that within the consulting space, those people who are really attracted to the ability to you know, make some significant business transformations, uh, make some significant iconic moves, as, as Nicola says, um, they don't get that access. Um, it's it's very attra- it's a very attractive option to go to a business with the brand permission, as a Deloitte does or a PwC to have those conversations with CEOs and boards. Uh, the reality of the situation is sometimes um, the models in which they find themselves in, or the environments in which they find themselves in, don't allow that creativity, uh, that permission uh, to thrive. So there is a cultural difference between the two. 
Um, I often say, um, you know, as a, as a creative within that consulting space, and I should add, I'm not a creative. I'm, you know, a traditional strat guy. But I have recognized that that's, that's the kind of the, the DNA of, of these businesses. And it, they're not allowed to thrive, though. The model doesn't allow it. The restrictive model you're talking about, Nathan, what, do you, what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, I, th- I think look, the model's been developed over decades it's been refined. It allows, um, it's a rate card, it's a time, it's the, the rate of the people. Within the creative environment, we don't, you know, it, it, it's much more nebulous than that. You know, it, a creative idea can, can happen on the first day, it can happen on the, on, on the end of the, you know, the first month. Now, that, incons- that inconsistency or that ambiguity in, the, in, the, in that model is something which they've tried to eliminate over, over many, many years. And that's where it becomes frustrating as creatives, or I recognise it became frustrating as creatives. And as a result, we've seen lots of people who have entered and come back out now. You know, I, I say, I say often, you know, um, you know, the big four services are, you know, where the the, the great creatives go to die. You know, uh, if you stay there, it kind of over over attrition over many years, you become, you know, you know, your your ability just becomes uh, denuded by the model. Well, let's talk, uh, Nicola, about what Mashup was doing pre-acquisition, uh, the sort of work that you were doing, and then what happened uh, afterwards. It changed. It did change. I think Mashup was doing a lot of work with small to mid clients and a lot of work in retail, writing customer experience strategies, which those small to medium-sized retailers absolutely hang their hats on. It is the foundation on which they build their business. You move into a professional services context, you haven't got as many of those sorts of clients. You do tend to do a lot more work with the larger ASX 200, for example, style of client. So they're looking for something slightly different. And what we found at Mashup is we actually, where we had been obsessed by the customer um, prior to acquisition, once we were in Deloitte, we found ourselves gravitating around the needs of the employees more and where we were often working in a retail space within professional services, we found ourselves working much more in the FSI space, financial uh, services. So our product morphed to adapt to the, uh, the fertile ground that we found in front of us within professional services and it was a different kind of fertile ground than we'd had as mashup. Did you expect that in the conversations going in? We didn't. We didn't expect that. So it was um, our innovation actually became very much around the model and uh, what we were offering, I should say. It uh, it became uh, we needed to adapt and evolve to meet the opportunities that were available to us. Edmund, you cover the professional services uh, sector and have done for a number of years. What are you seeing at a, at a big picture level about what the consultancies and why the consultancies are uh, moving into CMO practice and, and, and the marketing area and even acquiring agencies as we have a centre interactive, obviously slightly different structure, but what's, what's driving at a, at a big picture, do you think? So if we talk about the big four, um, Deloitte, Ernst & Young, KPMG and PwC, they're on the back of five to 10 years of 10 to 15% growth per annum. So they're, they're monoliths now, you know, with revenue of between a one and a half billion to over 2 billion a year. And they're reaching a stage where there's not much more growth for their traditional clients. So that's in their traditional service line. So audit is growing, not as fast as consulting, but that's a saturated market now. There's lots of growth there, but they're having to sort of compete more and things like that. So what you're finding is they're going into other service lines. So um, PwC's got a really big law practice now. 
So they're, they're going into old things where they think their model works. So law and the other one is CMO. So all the different things that, um, that we're talking about here today is, um, and they've all got slightly different strategies for it, but that's them looking for other service lines that are professional services they can bring into their model. Um, does it work or not? That, that depends. Um, that's one thing from a supply side. Um, from the, uh, the other thing they're doing is um, going into other markets. So whereas once they would have focused on the biggest clients, as you sort of intimated, Nicola, um, they're now going down into middle markets. So some of the biggest growth areas in, in a lot of the firms are the middle markets where they're, um, they're trying to bring their sort of scale and efficiency um, for smaller clients. So this client doesn't just think we're priced out of the market. Nathan, the model uh, of how consultants traditionally work, I mean, you've worked in strategy, you say there's sort of a a three-part way to ramp business to big projects uh, that might be three years down the track. Explain how that you see that. Yeah, the the, the kind of enduring mantra I've taken from a couple of the consultancies are sell it and solve it and land and expand. Um, And I think that would resonate with most people within the big four at the moment. Uh, but the strategy work uh, was the thin end of the thin end of the spear. Effectively, you could almost sell that at a loss, because typically in the particularly in the, in the digital environment, the strat work, the positioning work would be uh, as a precursor to the UX and the CX build, um, which could be of a you know a, a multiple of ten times more than the strat work. And then ultimately, what they're trying to do is sell you a big Martech platform. So it would be an Adobe implementation or a, or a, a CRM Salesforce implementation, which again were you know, several multiples times uh, in terms of uh, an engagement fee than than uh, than the strategy piece. So really, that's where they that's where they're, they're playing at the moment. They want to get into access different budgets in order to effectively sell those services, those implementation services that they've all been you know very very good at for for many many years now. They're buying their way into this, and then what happens? I think the attraction of a of a of an acquisition uh, to move them into a different space. It's been interesting from my observations, both being within consultancy and then outside, and kind of whether I've I've, I've become poacher turns gamekeeper or the other way around, is the the strategic kind of imperative or the rationale for an attractive uh, acquisition almost on the periphery of that creative services, um, you, you know, is logical. But the reality of the situation is, once it's been absorbed into the into the main organisation, the cultural elements, the people that are in there. In there you know, just the, the the DNA is is alien to a lot of the people who exist already in those organisations, and they either tend to just wither and die, or you know, most often or not, you see almost a, you know an attrition of the people very very quickly. You know, I said you know you look at three months, you look at twelve months, you look at twenty four months. You know, and I'd be I've not done the analysis, but in my experience, you know, you're looking at less than fifty percent of the people who came in on day one being there after twelve months. Well, you got you lasted three years though, um, uh, Nicholas. So, what was the cultural challenge or difficulties that you had? And you're you're coming very much from a creative aspect of of, of this, right? Yeah. So, probably one of the the more outlier acquisitions. I think it's fair to say, um, almost four years actually. So, I think you know, in the initial acquisition, there is enormous cachet for the brand. So Deloitte had enormous benefit from buying Mashup because the discussion in market lent to all sorts of differentiating powers for the Deloitte brand. I think when we think about what these businesses are offering, in many instances, 
the services are reasonably homogenised. So the value of brand, ironically, is is a big part of why these acquisitions might happen. Um, we were a consultancy, um, a customer experience consultancy. So I think what we were pretty good at it as a group of people was really responding to conditions as consultants. We, we listened, we heard, we understood, and we were able to adapt and survive. So I think actually, as far as acquisitions go, um, it did work quite well. And the majority of those people are still there. We're also able to grow significantly because it was a successful business. But what we went in to do is slightly different from what we ended up doing. And I think that's a really telling point. How many of these acquisitions are still doing what they did prior to being purchased? And I I think that says a lot about um, the model itself. I think both of you believe that there is an underappreciation of brand inside the consulting firms, at least at the moment. And we'll get to how this is all going to play out in a couple of years. But Nathan, you you think brand is underappreciated? I just I think it's so far away from traditional thinking in those traditional kind of uh, ways uh, we've developed around thinking about strategy. Yeah, and I've seen it. You know, I I, I was reflecting on a piece of a proposal I did ten years ago, and at best, brand and the and the strategic asset that it is 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 at best a bullet point on a on a PowerPoint presentation. And one of the reasons I've I suppose in in my career I've kind of and I've gone through the digital transformation piece and drank from that Kool-Aid, and I've realized now that as a strategic asset, it's it's the only one which really organizations have the most control over. Because of that, it's it has the ability to differentiate or or enable a business to be quite distinctive in a very crowded market where customer behaviors and expectations are, trem- are tremendously quickly, you know, changing. Um, you know, the rise of, you know, the digital icons, um, the startup um, environment, it means that a lot of incumbent and, and, and older businesses have a very difficult time to to, to, to maneuver around uh, that that environment. But their brand and the and the realization that their brand is an asset, a strategic asset which they can leverage, is I think something which is has not really been. Considered. And why is that? Why is it? Why do you think it's missing in the consulting uh, worldview? Uh, you know, marketing was a a a cost center usually, and it's the fluffy stuff. You know, it's the colors. You know, it's 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 the kind of stuff which sits on the outside of the organization. Um, it's so far away from that very core uh, strategy, strategy driving of the business. Then it's it, it's it's not traditionally been taught in that way through decades of MBA schools. Now I think we find out that it is, and then you know there are lots of proponents to say it is a strategic asset. Let's think about how this can drive growth and actually, uh, uh, you know, investment in the brand can trans. Uh, uh, I suppose, transcribed to tangible business results. Apart from brand, and, and it's a big one, but there is strategy, uh, there is uh, MarTech, there is customer experience, there is systems in- integration, all those technology things that the big consulting firms um, have been uh, pushing towards, which all overlaps into the marketing remit in some way. So how do you see all of that, um, Nathan, playing out in in the next couple of years? What happens in this mashup between the, the clash of the categories, the clash of the consultants and communications companies? I think certainly there's going to be, in terms of the big holding companies, there's there's possibly going to be more consolidation around capabilities and services within the the, 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 the big four professional services, and I'll throw Accenture and, and possibly even IBM in that that place. I certainly think there will be more acquisitions, you know, and so possibly some large acquisitions. But where I think they've, in Australia, maybe missed a trick is... Um, you know they've made acquisitions on the very very edge of the the creative kind of services they've they've locked out the 
you know, the, the big iconic, you know, ad makers in, in the industry. Well, it's it's interesting and it's exciting to go to that space, but they've all almost overstepped um, the issue around MarTech, which I think is a much more natural home for them to buy in. Um, and and again, you know, where we sit is 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 the space between brand strategy and business strategy, and it's those types of people or those types of organisations which I think you know they, they should have been focusing on rather than you know going that one or two steps further um, to uh, you know to make TV adverts effectively. Nathan, you talk about some of these acquisitions from the consulting firms and, and Accenture Interactive is being slightly indulgent. Elaborate on what you mean by that. Look, they've, they've succeeded. You know, they've done very well. In the good times, they will, you know, they will make these acquisitions. But when the, 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 the downturn of the market, which will inevitably happen with the, comp- the competitive uh, situation that, that Edmund's mentioned and, and the pressure on their core businesses... These these are the organisations. These are the parts of the organisation which will be the first to be cut and the first to be under pressure, um, because as I said, they they are they are they are acquired. They're operating in a way which is so alien to the to the you know the leaders of those businesses. Despite what they would say, um, that it will be you know the, a, a much lower margin business. It won't be core business. Therefore, they will be the first on the on the line to be uh, to be cut. And so, Nicola, to, to wrap up, you your your sense of what happens? How do you see the next twelve months, both where you are now and what you think of your, the old crew that you you were or the sector you were in professional services? How do you see some of that playing out in your in your world? Yeah, look, I think the dust will settle, and I think it will become very clear what the communication businesses are good at doing and what the uh, professional services are good at doing. So, I think. When clients begin to think about the degree of shift they're looking to make, that will start to answer whether they should be going to a creative business or to a professional services business. If the shift is big, they will want to come to an interbrand to make an iconic move. Edmund, to wrap up with you, the, the bigger picture here, of course, is that the consulting firms have got some bigger issues on their horizon as well around sort of there has been ACCC conversations, there's been inquiries, there's a UK inquiry into breaking them up. Just a really quick wrap up on how you see that. So their traditional base is audit. That's under fire basically around the world. Uh, the UK is the furthest along this path. Their competition regulator has basically said there should be an operational split between the consulting and the auditing arms. Uh, that hasn't come to Australia yet. Uh but what that means is that the um, you're limited in what you can sell to auditing clients. But what the concern is, is that auditing is a key function for the capital markets. You've got to be able to trust the annual reports. And if the trust isn't there, then um, then it doesn't work for anyone. And so what, what, they're, what they're saying in the UK is we don't like the way your consulting arm is basically dictating how the thing, things are run and there's a bit of conflict there. So that's sort of, um, that's coming to Australia as well. Um, ASIC is looking at it. The firms all revealed their audit quality figures last week and some of them weren't that good. Uh, so what, what you're seeing there is their traditional, um, it's, a small, it's a small branch now, but it's the core of their brand. Um, if we're talking about branding, that's under a bit of fire. And then with the consulting, the, you have all the other issues around um, this capacity they've reached. So they're, they're getting so big. Um, where's the growth going to come from to maintain that 10 to 15%? Well, there's certainly a lot happening and we look forward to probably uh, looping back around in 12 months' time and seeing what's, what, what's happened with the predictions. So there's a lot in there, John Bradshaw. Uh, what are your key takeouts? Mostly, I think if I took a kind of CMO's view, I don't care very much from a, from a CMO perspective. I'll be happy when everybody's decided where they want to work for and who they want to work for. 
But I do think there are some interesting things um, to pass comment on in terms of certainly this notion of culture and whether the types of creative people that traditionally would have been art directors and copywriters that build iconic creative advertising can find a comfortable home within a big for consulting and an accounting group. I think it's interesting. It's clear that not all of them can. And therefore, if the big four want to make a big play in the communications space, um, then they're going to have to do some interesting thinking about culture and how they manage that. Um, so I, I kind of totally understand that. And it does start to ask questions about whether at that end of marketing advisory in the building of advertising and the doing of design in that kind of arts type of creativity space, whether this will be a success for the big four or not, because it certainly requires a level of cultural change that is possibly beyond them, given the weight of culture that's driven by the types of people that you know make up the bulk of employees in those organizations at the moment. The interesting thing about the big consultants moving into the CMO space rather than the communication space is there are a whole bunch of things that CMOs need that has a much tighter fit with what the traditional consulting and kind of analytical model can deliver. Um, so everything from digital transformation through to a kind of hardcore marketing strategy, what segments, what markets shall we play in, uh, UX and CX, whilst there is, a de- there is a design bit of that job where you need a creative person, a lot of that is much more analytical, rigorous type work. And it's only when we get to design and communications where we start to require these particular talents that what we're hearing is certainly a large number of people struggling to um, struggling to fit in that environment. So I think, though, that Nathan talked about a couple of points. He talked about the underappreciation of brand inside the consulting firms and how that plays into a into an enterprise play as opposed to just the logos and design. So understanding brand strategy, underappreciated, perhaps. And the other thing uh, he talked about was the sense that even these big uh, CX and digital transformation programs are essentially technology-led to suit the interests of the firms that are now vested into rolling out big systems, uh, you know, uh, digital transformation programs led by technology. That fits in their big consulting sweet spot. So there is still a couple of things there that um, uh, are in the margins around uh, what happens next with them. Not sure that Nathan's entirely right about the brand thing. He may well be right about Deloitte. I don't know that, but I certainly know people who work at both KPMG and PwC, and they have been in recent years recruiting classic brand strategy people who you know, do the type of work that, that Nathan's very, very good at. So... Whether that was true when Nathan was in that consulting environment and they've started to change it through recruitment or whether it's still true in Deloitte, um, I don't know. But I certainly know very capable brand strategists working inside the big four consulting people who have a background that looks very similar to Nathan's. So, John, you say CMOs don't really care about this discussion, but I bet you all of them are being... um, uh approached by both sides of these sectors with looking for some work and business and wanting to do something with their with their but with the CMO budget. So when you say CMOs don't care, they certainly it'll be on their radar in some part. 
Well, yeah, because I didn't used to be able to go to KPMG or PwC in Deloitte as a CMO and and get advice. That didn't used to be a product they offered. Certainly couldn't go to Accenture and buy communications. Um, so I've got some new places to shop, um, but I'm still shopping for the same things and looking for the same characteristics in terms of what I think will deliver me excellence. Margin, though. So what you're going to be paying for a consulting firm versus what you pay for a, a, a comms holding company that argument that Edmund talks about that there's there is uh, lower margin in in in, um, in this area in the in the marketing practice area for consultants. Do you think there's anything in that? I do wonder how the lower margin of communications businesses are going to fit in the higher margin environment of a audit accounting and consulting practice. But as we were talking about, if they've run out of growth runway in consulting and audit and accountancy, then maybe growth, but growth at lower margin is an acceptable strategic future for them. Um, Certainly as a CMO, I'm not going to pay higher prices for my advertising because I bought it from Accenture. That's just, there's still clearly way too much competition in that market for me to need to do that. John Bradshaw, thank you. We'll be back next week uh, with another edition of MI3 and another interesting discussion. See you then. Thanks, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode.